morning, everyone. My name is Gary Harvat. I'm from the Client Success Team at QuickMed Claims. Welcome to our program today. Uh, before I introduce our guests, I'd like just to enjoy, uh, introduce my colleagues to you before we get started here. Uh, joining us today is uh, Chuck Humphrey. Chuck's up in our Danville, Pennsylvania office. I'm here in Pittsburgh, along with my other colleague, Stacy Dennis. Stacy is the Client Success Manager for Cooper University Healthcare. We've got a great program for you today, and it's one we hope that you'll uh, find informative. I know when I spoke to these good folks about this program, I thought it was quite interesting, and I said, hey, we need to, we need to promote this a little better across the country. So we have uh, folks joining us today from about 16 to 18 different states uh, that are interested in hearing what our good friends at Cooper University Healthcare have to say. So uh, joining us today from Cooper University Healthcare is Rick Rohrbach. Rick is the director of EMS for Air and Ground at Cooper University Healthcare. Also, Ron Murphy is the clinical manager for EMS. There we go. And uh, Mike Laverty is the EMS supervisor. And last but surely not least is Dr. Gerard Carroll who is the EMS Medical Director. Uh, welcome to all of you and thank you for taking time from your day to join us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I think this topic is one that's been a little bit overshadowed uh, by the COVID-19 epidemic, but sadly it still exists out there. And that of course, what we're talking about is the opioid epidemic, which continues to rage and rage and rage with um, I'm not sure if there's much hope in sight, but we're surely taking initiatives. You folks are taking initiatives to try to work through this with the communities you serve. Um, you know, it continues to be a considerable health crisis, of course, not only in the New Jersey area, but across the United States. And current evidence supports medication uh, for opiate use disorder, also referred to as MOUD, as the most effective treatment. And our friends are here today uh, to speak to this. And uh, of course, if you folks who are listening at home do have questions, you can feel free to go down to the bottom of your video screen. You'll see a little icon that says Q&A. If you type the question in, we will pose it to our expert panel and uh, they'll give you the answers. And at the end of today's presentation, we'll also give you an opportunity if you need to communicate with us post um, show today that you could do that and we will get the questions off uh, to the team at Cooper. So with that, I'm going to turn this over. Rick, will you be uh, starting or will be Dr. Carroll? It doesn't really matter. We're open to any conversation. Whoever wants to start it off and give us a little history as to how this started, where you are, and of course, where this program is going, this very creative program is going. Hey, it's Rick. I just wanted to thank everybody for taking the time this morning to give us an opportunity to talk about our program here at Cooper. Um, you know, we're very proud of it, and uh, we feel like we've uh, we've had a lot of good progress uh, with this program. And many of you may not be that familiar with buprenorphine or medication-assisted, so um, I think Ron will take the lead a little bit on kind of how we got started. And then Dr. Carroll uh, will take a little bit of time to talk to everybody about exactly what those things are. Um, and then probably who you want to hear the most is Mike Laverty, who is one of our supervisors, but he was also staff when we started this. And he was one of the main drivers of getting this started from the staff level, um, because this is really staff centric, um, not leadership centric. So I think Mike has a lot of good information to give you all. Um, and um, so I think you'll enjoy that. So, Ron? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us, and I want to wish everybody a happy EMS week. Um, this is the one week where we really get to acknowledge the work that we've done. A lot of times it's, it seems like it's underappreciated, but I can tell you as a, you know, a longtime 20-plus year paramedic and in my current role as a manager and as, a, as an educator, um, the job that you do every single day is you know, grossly unappreciated, but trust me, we recognize the work you do and it is absolutely, absolutely appreciated. And, you know, there's a lot of belief in our, our line staff out there in EMS. And I truly believe that this program has seen some success so far because of our staff, our line staff. 
Uh, it's not because of the input of our physicians or our managers, but really what drove this program to success was our everyday street providers. So I can't express enough appreciation for the job that you do, um, not just here in Camden, but across the nation. So um, with that being said, this entire project essentially got started with a couple of our providers coming to us. In Camden, we see about 1,800 overdoses annually where these are patients that we're administering Narcan to. And in many cases, it's multiple patients per day. Um, and in some cases, it's the same person three times a day. And after a period of time, that starts to get frustrating. And this really started by some of provi the provider fatigue experienced by our, our ALS and BLS providers alike, that they just simply came to us and said, Murph, I wish it was just one day where I didn't have to give Narcan to somebody. And that really kind of drove home. It's there's that revolving door of addiction where as pre-hospital providers, we get an IM one call, we go out there, we administer Narcan, these patients pay, wake up, many times they refuse and they go about their business and we're seeing them two and three hours later. At some point you have to stop and think, you know what, what's the definition of insanity? Enough is enough, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that there's a different result. And that's really what kind of, you know, help to take a look at what else is out there, right? That provider fatigue. And that really hit home for us because I think it's something that we've all experienced and we've all expressed. So we need to figure out what else is up there. So Dr. Carroll's a longtime paramedic as well. Um, him and Rick kind of sat down and said, what else is out there? What else can we do besides just give, you know, naloxone to people and wake them up? So I think that's where you know, Dr. Carroll started to reach out to his colleagues um, in the emergency department, as well as addiction medicine, to figure out what is out there, right? And that's when, when the addiction medicine essentially said, you know what, we've had a lot of experience with, you know, medication-assisted treatment using buprenorphine. So before we go any further, I, Dr. Carroll, if you don't mind taking a couple minutes to just kind of talk about what is, a bup you know, what is buprenorphine? Um, just briefly talk on the addiction pathway, because that's the reality is I've never was taught this in, in paramedic school, you know, up until 2019, I didn't really know what suboxone and buprenorphine was. And I certainly had no idea what an addiction pathway was. Right. And I think that's what leads to a lot of people's frustration is not having a firm understanding of the physiology of addiction. So Dr. Carroll, if you don't mind, can you go into those briefly for us? Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Very well. Awesome. So thanks for having us today. We're really excited to talk about this program. I love to be interrupted. I want to be clear, not just talking. So just to continue setting the stage that Murph set up for us. In 2018, right, we'd all been doing this. I mean, I don't like to admit how long I've been doing some kind of emergency medicine, but overdose changed for us that year. If you combined our unconscious and overdose, overdose call types, they were the top call type for ALS units in the city. And the emergency department, compassion fatigue, and frank burnout were really part of it. I've never seen so many endocarditis cases, spinal epidural abscesses, all the complications, plus just our average cardiac arrest age had actually gone down for two years running. So it was just a big deal for our city. Um, and when you look back in time, certainly at my education in EMS, Murph just alluded to it, right? This was not part of a disease process on the slides in my paramedic program. It was just a slide on the unconscious overdose population, right? You gave Narcan and we either took them to the hospital or we gave them a sandwich and we sent them on their way, right? And so there was this change in our minds about, right? All of that addiction training came from my childhood, right? The alcoholics in the neighborhood, people I'd seen, not science. Um, and when we started talking to providers and started even looking at our own biases, there was this real idea that this was not a disease process, but a character flaw in these patients. and right away that biased all of our interactions. So I think the first thing is when I move into the medicine here is, and I want you to just take the leap with me if this is not part of your practice yet, because I had to and it took me a while, is you need to change that thought process. This is now a disease process. Just like we, you know, someone comes in with obesity or hypertension because they ate too many Big Macs, which I'm certainly guilty of, right? I don't think about not giving them their medications. And I need to think of that when I think, when I see someone with opiate use disorder. So. When we talk about like different psychiatric diagnoses and different medical diagnoses, what are the criteria? So opiate use disorder, right? It's a me medical illness. However you got started on opiates, whether it's my fault as a physician, which is a very likely possibility, the medical world is really the big source of this, or you found it recreationally, whatever happened, 
a, there's a neurobiological change in our patients' brains once they've become addicted to opiates. And it's just not the same as the way you or my brain works anymore. And this is not a character flaw, this is a medical illness. And so once we think of that, then we have to think about how to treat it. Because the reality is, if you look at 99 out of 100, unlike alcoholics where more than 75, 80% can achieve long-term remission, and don't quote me on those numbers, I'm not an addiction specialist, but large numbers, less than one in 100 opiate use disorder patients will achieve any kind of meaningful remission with just abstinence-based therapy. So we need to find something else. And so what is that? Well, there's two medications that have been proven to work, right? That's, there's methadone and then there's buprenorphine. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on methadone because I've already talked a lot and we got a little ways to go here, but I wanna focus on buprenorphine because it's a little more flexible um, and it's worked very well for us. And I think it's the one medicine that really has a great role for EMS providers because of its safety profile. So what is buprenorphine? So it's an opiate, so let's start right there, but it's kind of unique. Um, it's a high affinity partial agonist. And right away, I feel everybody glazing over as you look back to medic school and there was those painful graphs and all that garbage, right? But the idea is it's a high affinity, which means it grabs an opiate receptor, like a really hard handshake and won't let go. But instead of like thrusting up and down like a big politician, it just holds it there. It doesn't shake the hand very hard. So that's kind of the two things about that. So what does that do for us? So when you take buprenorphine, that high affinity, that hard handshake is hard enough to knock other opiates off the opioid receptor, possibly even fentanyl and Narcan. So the data there is a little mixed. The second thing it does is it doesn't turn that receptor all the way on. So even if I take a ton of buprenorphine, it's almost impossible, never say impossible, but to stop breathing the way it is super easy to do with fentanyl or heroin or a lot of our other opiates, right? So that's that safety profile. But the great thing about it is once it's bound there so tightly, it actually protects patients if they take opiates. It's, very, it's much harder to overdose on fentanyl and things like that when buprenorphine's already bound. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Happy to, um, and so that's kind of the thing. So when we talk about medication-assisted therapy for opiate use disorder, and now I've used all kinds of acronyms that get painful, right? We talk about something just like your blood pressure medicine. You need to take this every day. And if you don't take it, you will feel sick. Just like many psychiatric medications, right? There is withdrawal from lots of medications we give. And we need to think of that for our patients. And so we have to figure out how to get them on that because the reality is for 99 out of 100 people with opiate use disorder, the pain and misery of going through withdrawal is too high a motivator, right? It's not this idea that we're partying on Friday night. The idea is that my entire life becomes consumed with just not going through withdrawal once I hit that really high plateau in my opiate use disorder. And I spend 24 hours a day when I'm not sleeping or unconscious from my drugs trying to get the next fix. Not because of a character flaw, because my brain has changed. So I think that's probably a good enough me talking. We'll probably get back to that, but I figure that's a good intro. And I'm happy to take questions if people type them in. Uh, we actually do have a question, doctor, if you don't mind taking that now. Um, it's actually a two-part question from our good friends in Nebraska. Uh, I guess the first part was, uh, was the medication on New Jersey's uh, approved drug list prior to the study? Absolutely not. So, um, and that took a little bit of an act of God and luckily just an act of the legislature to take care of that and the governor, but um, the commissioner of health and all the people we got as partners. But no, initially one of the strengths of the program was when we decided we wanted to do this and I'm, I don't want to steal Merck's thunder, but just in quick, we really needed to engage our providers and we needed to, all those things I just talked about sound great if you were already signed up, but if you didn't believe this and this wasn't how you were raised and how you were educated, you have to convince me of this, right? Because behind that, I had 10 years of naked patients vomiting with bleeding noses after I overdosed with them, cursing me out and just generally not being a great part of my day. That stood in stark contrast to that medical that I just gave you. Um, and so initially when we wanted to do this, like so many things I wanna do, and Rick and I sat down, we sat down with addiction medicine. The ER was just getting into this. We were just, they were just building an addiction clinic at Cooper. We were like, wow, how are we gonna do anything like this? And we decided to take a little bit of a leap of faith. We had EMS physicians who were a little more flexible in the field. So we put buprenorphine on those units and we just went out with the crews and we started seeing it because we didn't actually know what it would work. Um, and over about a year period while we did that, we just kind of kept our fingers crossed, negotiating with the state 
until they finally gave us a waiver to do this. Now, the wonderful thing about the United States of America and terrible thing is we're 50 countries and so each state will have their own rules for this. And I'm not even gonna pretend to tell you how to do it in yours, but I'm happy to talk about to anyone who tries it and tell you our experience offline. And, and Dr. Carroll, how long was the process from when you approached the state till the when it became a reality? Same question, same uh, individuals asking that question. Yeah, so September of, I'm gonna screw up my years, but it was September of one year to June of the next. Very good. Thank you. Hey, um, if I could, if I could dovetail on what Dr. Carroll said, and because I, I just want to set it up for for EMS. You know, one of our goals, at least uh, from the EMS side, was a way to leverage EMS. You know, EMS is engaged uh, with this population every single day. Uh, we're almost one of the one constants um, to this um, epidemic, and. You know, we felt that EMS should play a larger role uh, and not just be quote unquote Narcan pushers. Um, if you think about it, in some states, you know, if you wake somebody up with Narcan, you, you, um, you know, you have, they have to be transported to the emergency department. Here in New Jersey, that's not the case. So, you know, we may only transport, you know, 40% or 50% of the people that we give that medication to. So we are in fact the only healthcare provider that they're going to interact with. So that already tells you that there is an issue with access um, to medication assisted treatment, right? So what better way than to bridge that uh, barrier is through EMS. And that was the conversations that we had had with addiction medicine and how we can leverage our own EMS system to do that. Now, again, that there was some concern um, here in Camden, uh, we have a response time metric that is extremely important to our operation. Um, and we, you know, we could not allow that to suffer in any way. Um, so there was always a concern when we operationalized this, is it going to tie up our ALS units too long? How, how is this going to look? Uh, because nobody else had done it. So there was really no, no guidance on it. it you know, we kind of had to figure it out on our own. Um, and I'm happy to say we, we've, we've not had any impact on our, res, our response time or our access to 911 in general through this program, which I think is a positive. But I, I thought it was important to set it up for everybody why EMS is important to this and why we, why we worked hard with, with our partners, Department of Health um, and the governor. Um, our addiction medicine, our emergency medicine folks to try to get this program up and running. It took a lot of players to make it happen. Um, but as Ron and Mike will talk about some of our statistics and what's happened, I think you'll find that it was well worth the effort. Yeah, it certainly was. And like I said, it wasn't without its challenges. It wasn't without its, you know, going back to the drawing board. But that was one of the bigger questions is how are we going to operationalize this? And how are we going to utilize what exists currently to make this work? I mean, this is an entire different, you know, different mindset on treating these patients. So, you know, we tapped into what exists out there that that's in, in the EMS world that kind of breaks away from the traditional responding to 911 calls. And that's when the community paramedicine model that the country is, is kind of exploring popped up. And, you know, is there an opportunity to utilize that model here? So, we go back into our, our, you know, our, our kind of first attempt at this and, and trying to figure out, you know, find our way to, to get through this project. And that community paramedicine model pretty much came, to, came into play. Like, okay, what can we do to leverage EMS in this? So, but there were some challenges that we, we initially, you know, had such as, you know, the traditional assessment that EMS providers go through is, hey, what's your current, you know, what's your current symptom and your chief complaint and, tell me everything pertinent that goes into that. This is a little different. This kind of branches away and you're dealing with a population that has street smarts, which are far greater than us. So, and along with addiction is a lot of manipulative behavior. So how do you overcome that? So, you know, these were a lot of the things that we experienced, but so there were a, a lot of first steps that we needed to simultaneously take. And as Rick was talking about, we needed to partner with the Department of Health because the reality is paramedics were not uh, credentialed to be able to give buprenorphine in the field. It was not on our approved medication list. So 
That was one of the things. How do we get it out there? So the first attempt was essentially Cooper has an EMS fellowship program to where our fellows had buprenorphine on the street. And if we encountered a patient that was a candidate, we would call our fellows out to the, you know, out to the scene and they would administer it. But the reality is they're not going to be with us. You know, they're not going to be available 24 seven when we may need this. So that was only a temporary solution. Um, but we really had to partner with the Department of Health to get that approved. And, you know, there were a, a lot of, you know, behind the scenes contact with the Department of Health. But I think one of the things that ultimately helped us out was the Assistant Commissioner of Health for New Jersey actually came to Camden and did a ride along with us to see these calls. And, you know, once he came out and he saw what we were dealing with, literally, I remember the moment that he was on our, one of our transportation centers right here in Camden, he said, you know what, guys, I think I get it. I think I know what we need to do. And with that, took it back to the Department of Health, um, helped execute the, the executive order from Governor Murphy and ultimately gave it to us. Um, so now we had some of those challenges behind us. Now we're some of the bigger challenges. What do our EMS providers think about medication-assisted treatment, right? A lot of our, a lot of the challenges, and you know, Michael go into this a little bit more was, are we just exchanging one medication for another? Are we exchanging one addiction for another? Um, and in some ways we are, but in some ways it's healthier for these people and they have to have, you know, you have to take a first step and this is the opportunity to take that first step. So, you know, we got a bunch of these things into place, but now was the education part. Now we had to kind of get buy-in from our staff and that took multiple months to, to kind of, um, put the education process out there. It wasn't just one little session to do it because you had to change the hearts and minds. So, you know, essentially what we did was we took all the literature that surrounded the success of buprenorphine treatment and we got our addiction medicine folks to come over and, and talk about, you know, this is their, this is their successes in addiction medicine. And this is the literature they've utilized to kind of guide what they're doing, right? We're an evidence-based society and the evidence is there that medication assistment worked, especially for opioid use disorder. So, you know, we did some of the, the, the literature reviews and, you know, kind of talked about, it. this is why we're doing it. And, you know, we gave them some time to, to digest that, those studies. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't just one session. So, you know, we came back into the classroom a month later and said, all right, what do you think? And, and, you know, Mike, maybe you can talk about what the general attitude was towards MAT initially before we even rolled it out. Well, yeah, and I'll jump in here, Mike, uh, as you answer that. I did have a question come up sure. asking what type of training you did to change that addiction character flaw mindset. So if you can speak to that, it rolls right into, you know, the flow right here. Um, that will be of interest to, uh, to our listeners. Absolutely. So, Everything we do in you know in medicine, whether you know whether it, it's Dr. Carroll in the emergency department to the EMS providers on the street, right? Everything we do is geared towards evidence-based medicine. So we presented the evidence to them and the success that they've had. And the reality is, medication-assisted treatment has greater success than MI treatment, right? It just take a look at the statistics on your own. So we presented the statistics, we gave them an opportunity to digest them. But some of the other things we, we really did was we engaged, you know, we engaged um, addiction medicine to come talk to us about what is the addiction pathway. There's a physiologic process to addiction. And what is that? You know, it wasn't, like I said earlier, it wasn't a part of my education. I had no idea, you know, that that even existed. So we had to let them know that there's this pathway to addiction that is not voluntary. We all, you know, across the country, you're going to have providers that are going to say it's their choice. They're choosing to do this. Right. And I look at this, like, I don't know anybody growing up that chose to be homeless and addicted to heroin living under route 676 in Camden. Nobody chose that. Right. So what happened along the way? Right. And when you learn about the addiction pathway and you realize that this is an involuntary process, you start to understand that, you know what, it's not as much of a choice as people really believe it is. And you had to start changing their mind. And we changed that mind with information. But one of the other big things that we did, and I think was mostly beneficial, was every one of our paramedics went and did a shadowing shift with an addiction medicine doc in the addiction clinic. Go talk, go, you know, you're going to shadow the physician for a day and you're going to learn, you know, what motivational interviewing is. You're going to learn how we got to where we are and how the patients got to where they are. And once you see that, that's a part of, part of the patient assessment process we never engaged in before. And 
that was one of the biggest things, you know, that, that I believe was helpful. And, and Mike, if you don't mind, step in and, and talk about what that experience was like for you and your colleagues when you were on the street at the time. Okay. Uh, can you guys hear me all right? Yep. Yes. Okay. So I will admit, and I'm not proud of it, but I was one of the biggest uh, opponents to, to the concept. Um, we had the initial meeting and I'm like, no, this is nonsense. This is ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that whole thing. And then I really stopped and I, I thought, and like Murph said, you know, what's the definition of insanity, you know, having, you know, resuscitated opiate overdoses from the ages of, you know, patients that are 15 to patients that are 80, there has to be something more. And I, I needed to learn more. So I, Enlisted in the in this program, I started to believe in it. I went to shadow at the addiction medicine clinic with Dr. Harose, who is amazing. She changed my whole mindset on everything, and she gave me a lot of good advice. And honestly, she said when she got into addiction uh, addiction medicine as well, uh, she was kind of the same mindset that I was. And getting more into it, she was able to actually change the way that she was, you know, assessing every single patient. And she, it felt like, she felt like it made her a better physician for doing so. And that really, really struck a chord with me. And I started actually listening with my ears, you know, and it is truly impacted, you know, my life as a paramedic, my life as a parent and as a husband and a, and a family man. And I understand how, how fragile things can actually be, that this is not a choice. And there's a lot of folks that are victims of circumstance. And, you know, to some degree, some people will, will try, you know, different drugs and then they just end up this path of uh, opioid addiction, um, suffering from the opioid use disorder, other substance abuse disorder. Um, it, it really impacted my life and just changed how I looked at everything. And, Fortunately, I had the opportunity um, to be one of the first paramedics who was actually allowed uh, by the state to administer suboxone in the field. And the success rates were, were simply amazing. And it, I know it's a tough sell for a lot of folks, um, especially medics that are a little bit seasoned. Um, we're a bit stubborn. Um, we really need to just listen and learn. So guys, what's the, what's the flow of information that comes in off the street that you're able to uh, determine your success rate? How does that all tie together? I know we have a, we have a client up in New Hampshire that is uh, having an addiction specialist out in a fly car that goes out to all overdoses. And, and then there's a tie in back to treatment to, you know, transport to alternative destination being the treatment facility versus the ED. How do you guys tie all that data back? So you know how the program is uh, progressing. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I can hit into that real quick. Um, so I think one of the big things is you can't do this as an Island. Um, one of the unique things that happened for us in Camden was that we ended up with a very proactive addiction clinic in Camden City based through Cooper that actually had a large emergency medicine. Both of our toxicologists kind of founded that clinic for us and then went through the process, just like we're talking about hearts and minds here with EMS, with hardened inner city emergency physicians who were also like, why are you putting something else on my plate? This is a very easy dispo for us. What do you mean you want me to give buprenorphine? That's clinic, right? I don't do that. And that fight had already been going on and our 100% of our docs in the ER are now ex-wavered, even though that looks like it may go away. But so we've been, and so there was a familiarity with buprenorphine, but the reality is we do this to rescue people from withdrawal symptoms, but we also do it to begin them on therapy long-term. And if your system can't provide for early follow-up, and this is one of our big challenges because the patient population just by nature of the disease is not in the best place to follow up at 2.30, four days from now, across town or two towns over, right? Time is taken on a different meaning for a lot of our patients. And so we tried a lot of different models, but really had to move to next day kind of follow-up. But I think if you don't have this kind of group effort where you can both bring people in to teach your providers why it's important and also a way to push these patients back out and get them into recovery, I'm not sure it's worth the time and effort. Um, the second thing that you, were, you mentioned New Hampshire and having someone who goes out separate. Um, I mean, I started as a paramedic back in the early nineties and 
watched the graveyard of community paramedicine programs die along the grant cycle. One of the things that gets me in trouble sometimes with my colleagues is I think pilot programs with community paramedics is interesting, but my focus and interesting interest is on the line unit and what we can do to move all paramedics forward. Um, and I didn't want to, I, we, while we talked about that, I never really wanted to build a program where a year, two years, whatever many years into it, we just cut it because the funding was gone. And I've always felt as one of those paramedics watching someone run around in the fly car doing something interesting, that hey, why weren't, you know, why was this never trickling down to us on the street? Um, and so what I think is most fascinating about our program is that when the grant, the grant money's already gone, there may be some more coming in, but it's been gone for a while. And the program's still fine because it lives on a 911 unit that's never going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think Lav can talk to it better because obviously I'm the medical director, no one's gonna tell me, but I do think it makes everybody's practice better. Um, and so I think those are the big things that I, just to think about it. Um, the last thing I wanna talk about just real quickly is when we started the program, we actually brought an addiction counselor out into the field and she was great for teaching some engagement to our people, but she quit within three days because she was terrified of our, of our world. And so it was really funny when you sat in the hospital in a fancy boardroom talking about addiction medicine, it was all about who had the training to engage with this population. And the reality was I had that perfect group, right? My people are comfortable in any setting. They can go anywhere, places that honestly, I'm starting to think I shouldn't go anymore, right? And they make it work. And all I had to do was give them tools to talk to people versus I had to train 20, you know, how many years of paramedic know-how and EMT know-how into somebody who'd been in a fancy office their whole career. And so I think we are unique for this population. Like we're a resource that's just perfect for it. But anyway, you get off my soapbox. I said I didn't talk too much. I, I think it might be helpful to Dr. Carroll real quick just to let people know what um, they might be a little bit confused about what what our program actually is uh, before Mike talks a little bit more about it is we don't just give the buprenorphine um, it's more than that um, we engage you know we've providers have been taught how to engage this population on every single overdose call whether they give buprenorphine or not whether the patient's ready or not um, and when they do get the buprenorphine, they also get an appointment immediately. We give them an appointment uh, in the in the addiction medicine clinic. And we do have a community paramedic that works part-time for us 20 hours a week. And his role is when he's here, he'll also go out on the calls. He doesn't give buprenorphine, but he engages those patients um, and develops that relationship. He also follows through, follows up on all the all the patients, all the administrations, because we do track uh, first appointment, we track 30 day, uh, and we track I believe 90 day as well. Um, and so Ron can talk a little bit about our statistics, because I'll say it again, EMS is uniquely leveraged for this because in many cases we are the only healthcare provider that they are going to have contact with. So how we not just that we wake them up, it's, it's what we do after we wake them up and how we communicate with them that really gets them um, to a point where we can get them into a program that, that helps them. And I think, uh, you know, again, EMS is so much uh, unique for, to be able to do that. I don't know any other entity that could do it uh, the, way, the way we can. Well, and gentlemen, you talked on funding. And so since we are ambulance fillers, um, Maybe you want to speak at some point about, because I, I hope that our audience includes some legislators, and we talk a lot about legislation in this program uh, because it's central to what we do at Quick Med Claims and supporting all of you. So I'm interested to hear about what your wish list is as we move into the new waiver for treatment in place that just uh, uh, came as part of the uh, American Rescue Plan. And as we look ahead to ET3, and you know, it seems that our legislators are starting to hear us about these kind of um, not just being a transport modality. So I'm interested if you, you can spend a minute or two talking about how the funding, uh, you know, can down the line support this kind of thing, and 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 how it ties back to cost savings in the ED and and all those kind of things. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. 
Well, I think one of the things that would be beneficial, especially in this population, we've been beneficial. We've been, you know, very fortunate to be able to have open appointments at our addiction clinic. If I see somebody today, I start them on buprenorphine, they have an open appointment tomorrow at the addiction clinic. And that's part of the success of this program. The problem is I can't transport them to an addiction clinic, right? If I had the ability to, to have them engaged right now and have the ability to put them in front of an addiction medicine specialist immediately after overdose, I think the benefits of that are huge, but I can't transport them there. And not every system is going to have, you know, an ER physician, which is where we have to transport these folks. They're not going to have, you know, ED physicians who are X wavered or you know, have an, an interest in addiction medicine like Dr. Carroll does, right? I, I may not be able to take them there. And I'm sure that there's other states across the country that are going to experience that as well. So from our standpoint, the ability to be able to transport to an alternative destination and be able to be, you know, worry about that reimbursement dollar is going to be hugely beneficial to us. Right? These patients may not necessarily need an emergency department right now, but they certainly need some sort of addiction counseling right now. And that would be beneficial for us and, and, you know, and the patients in the long run um, to get them on that path to recovery. I mean, that's ultimately what the goal is. I, I have to agree with Murph, if I, if I may. Um, we have a very, seemingly a very narrow window um, when we're treating these folks, especially right after the overdose. We have 30, maybe two minutes to confidence, gain their trust to even consider administering buprenorphine to them. And then a short period of time later where they're still going to have that clarity and that willingness to go and seek that extra treatment. Um, honestly, they're afraid. They don't want to be sick. None of them want to be high. They're not trying to get high. They just want to avoid being sick. So, the second that the first thing they're going to do when they get scared, when they start feeling like they're withdrawing again, they're going to use, and then we may, we might lose them and they might not show up to the appointment the next day or two days later. Gentlemen, we had a question out of our good friends in Texas. Um, what has been um, the feedback you've received from the actual patient population? It's actually been pretty amazing. Um, one of the biggest things that we hear is simply thank you. Thank you for treating me like a person. Because for, for so long, and it's, it's law enforcement, it's hospital, it's other EMS providers, they get treated very, very poorly. They get looked down upon and they feel like second or third class citizens. And we've had grown men in their 30s and 40s crying their eyes out in the back of our ambulance thanking us for giving them a second chance. Wow, that's powerful. That Great story. Really powerful. Great it's story. Because yep. you know what, guys, I've been out there and I've run with partners that, that have taken that attitude and, and, and that's, um, that's unacceptable. Today, exactly. age, it's, it's totally unacceptable. Kudos. I, I got to yep. tell you, that, that makes me emotional. Really, It really gets to me. Yeah. Uh, Chuck and I are, are old EMS guys. The old is the operative word there. I was out there in the 70s. And of course, you know, the stereotype was very much, oh, it's another addict. And uh, really didn't, you know, sad to say, it's the truth, but sad to say um, that you folks are, are changing that. Um, sadly, it's decades later, but you're still changing it, which is extremely important. And again, I echo Chuck's sentiments, kudos. So keep doing the great things you're doing with that, but feel free to go on. So I, I th one of the interesting things, it, it's kind of, you know, an inside EMS joke to us, is and it, you know obviously it's not a joke but you know our our providers have been have been kind of nicknamed in in the population in here in Cam the the subs guy right we'll be out there treating somebody and somebody will walk up like yo man you're the subs guy aren't you and like what do you mean I'm not selling sandwiches um, but what they're doing is we've gotten a reputation out there that they know that you know not everybody is willing to engage right now um, but you know when they are ready they will come to us. And we've had a few of our patients come up to us and say, listen, I'm ready. I, you guys not, you know, woke me up and gave me Narcan last week. I, I just, I didn't want nothing to do with you, but can you help me today? You know what? Let's send you to the addiction clinic right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it's kind of funny when you, when you take a look at the, how, what the response has been from that patient population, <laughs> they kind of know us in that, you know, in that, in that community as the subs guys. Right. So it, it's kind of funny, but, the reality is, I think that kind of shows that we've had a positive impact, 
and they are thinking about it. They are thinking about how they get ready. And when they are ready, they come engage us. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and just my own question, Murph, are, sure. are you getting, being this, given the success you've had so far, are you starting, is it starting to snowball? Are you getting inquiries from other agencies outside uh, the, the Cooper area of service out in New Jersey and other states? I so mean, obviously this is great, great news. Between, you know, myself, Rick, Dr. Carroll, um, Lav, we've probably gotten inquiries from about 30 different states over the course of the last year. Um, people that have just generally heard about it are colleagues up at the Department of Health. Um, there's kind of somebody who over, helps us oversee the program, and he's always putting us in touch with people from other states. We were communicating with Boston uh, a couple weeks ago on how we got started and what our protocol is. And um, we're happy to share whatever information anybody is seeking. Um, you know, we're happy to share that information. This isn't something we're just going to do in a bubble. Um, but, you know, we'll share our, our failures. We'll share our successes, um, how we got here. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not a one size fits all. And you may find out that your state has different needs than the, you know, than what we have here in New Jersey, but we do communicate with a lot of people, but, you know, everybody starts to get into this, realizes that there are quite a few challenges to getting off the ground and we're willing to help anybody get there. Um, You know, it's been a, it's been one incredible thing to be a part of for the first, you know, 18, 19 years of my, of my paramedic career. I did nothing for these people, but give Narcan and something had to change. And now there's another alternative um, and to be from a provider standpoint, it's become rewarding for us to be a part of it. Sure. Guys, we've had a question uh, just asking if you've had a chance to uh, present your stats on who follows through with their clinic appointments in any of the medical conferences like nationwide. Uh, are you beginning to, to share any of that? Uh, I'm sure I can that, take that. Yeah, um, Dr. Carroll, go ahead. Yeah, so we presented very, only in a few places. We did at the Addiction Medicine Conference just a month ago some of our initial data as far as, but I feel it's only fair. We've given you a lot of anecdote here in our experience. And I said, we're talking about science here, right? So last year we did publish a case report on our first time. I was at four or five patients. I think it was whatever they allowed me to do. Um, And we have a new study that's headed toward publication on our first overlaying 120 patients that we did this in. Um, Because there are some real concerns that have been raised when we started and questions that we had, right? You do any kind of new intervention, it has to be safe. Most patients who get started on buprenorphine are induced slowly, often in clinic, not at the point of acute overdose. That's not as common. Um, And like I said, buprenorphine is a high affinity partial agonist. And so one of the dangers is if if you're high and dependent on especially fentanyl, but even other opiates, and you take it, you can precipitate withdrawal, which is obviously the last thing we want to do. Not that it's life-threatening, but it's miserable and it can make a patient much less likely to engage in therapy later. Um, and so we do, and you can look into our study, it gives you all the graphs, the algorithm, all of that, so you don't have to remember it here. Um, that we can give that to you for the show notes if you like, I'm pretty sure it can be shared. I don't care personally. Um, but what happens is we do something called the clinical opiate withdrawal scale. The paramedics do it on scene. They have to have a certain level of withdrawal that's been induced by the rescue Narcan naloxone already given. And then they can administer high dose buprenorphine, 16 milligrams, which is normally the starting daily dose for a lot of patients. And they give it all at once. Um, What I can say now, and like I said, until I have a randomized study, I can't promise you, but after a hundred patients done in the, over a hundred patients done in the field, we've had zero precipitated withdrawal, which was our biggest concern. Our follow-up rate, I have to calculate the most recent one, but it was in the 20 to 30% when we first looked at it and the new data is just coming out now. Um, which is higher than the emergency department follow-up rates, which was our really only comparison that we could use. Um, so anyway, so very promising data early on, the kind of thing where a year ago I would have told you to do this because I loved it, but it would have been anecdote. Very soon I think I can publish compelling data that you should be doing this in your area. It's great. And that's pretty, and stuff. We, we, you know, we really do want to talk about this um, locally and nationally, but I think we're we're waiting on the study to be published. Um, so we, you know, we have some some hardcore science to speak to when we go out and speak about it. But yeah, we would like to share this with anybody who's willing to listen. Very nice. Yeah, great stuff. Anything else to add, gentlemen? By all means, we're all ears. This is 
really very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay. Very good. Well, I can't thank you folks enough for taking time from your busy day. I know that uh, it's hard to do in this day and age to spend even 15 or 20 minutes doing something like this. And you guys have really gone above and beyond for us and of course our listeners. So thank you. Um, we'll look uh, for more on this. Uh, this is something that I'm anxious to read the study results and get, gain more information about. Uh, of course, uh, I see this and I hope that this will, trend will continue not only in your area, but of course across the country. So Chuck or Stacy, do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh, I have to tell you, I, I don't think we could have picked a better topic for EMS League. For EMS League. of, you know, uh, I think back 35 years for me and uh, to watch EMS become this is, is crazy. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I live in a small community relatively uh, that has a huge opioid problem. And, um, you know, if this can trickle down from the big city to someday and I know there, um, there is an initiative in our area of looking at things like this through our MIH program. Um, this will be a huge win. So guys, you know, I, I always, Gary and I always talk about sitting in front of the TV and watching Johnny and Roy run around. This is like watching Johnny and Roy run around in that little red squad, you know. For sure. Um, this is where, you know, where pre-hospitals uh, going. And um, I, I just, I tip my hat to you guys. Super Absolutely. job. It's an emo I didn't expect it to be an emotional but when you mentioned about, you know, the folks um, coming back and thanking you and isn't that exactly what we all thrive on, you know, and um, I know that's what kept me in the business for 35 years. So I, you know, really great. Thank you. And doctor, thank you for your buy-in. Uh, I know that's not always uh, uh, a possibility and I'm sure these guys uh, appreciate you more than they'll ever be able to tell you. Just have one more question. I, I asked you about the, uh, the patients and the feedback you received. I gotta believe that's only amplified by the families of those patients you see, because they're living this. They may not be addicted, but they're living this uh, with their loved one. And I, I would take it that they're just welcoming this with open arms. That's the, I, I guess that's, if there's a missing piece to what we're doing in the pre-hospital world, we don't get an opportunity to engage with the families right then and there as we're referring to the clinic. Sure. Um, more on the clinic side, they have an opportunity to engage with families. But I also think that that's the portion of our education process where they're going to the addiction clinic and doing a, a rotation in the addiction clinic that they have an opportunity to see the families. So, you know, we see family members when we have all sorts of other, you know, medical conditions that we're responding to. Um, but on these, a lot of times these patients are alone. Um, and the, when they do overdose in front of patient, you know, in front of family members, it's kind of crisis mode. Uh, so there is a little bit of an appreciation, but the overall recovery process, I, I would say is a missing piece for us because that's not something we have an opportunity to engage in. Um, but having a partnership with addiction medicine and getting that follow up from them kind of fills that in for us. So it's not like we don't have an avenue to it. Um, we do. Uh, and that's where that partnership comes in. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Chuck, you would, you would, uh, earlier you would ask about funding wish list. And I think we maybe weren't clear enough on the, at least for me, the one thing that I want that I think is so important is that training. Um, I think Ron spoke to it that that training doesn't happen, uh, in your traditional paramedic and EMT. And I, and I want to stress that this is not just our paramedics that are part of this program. Our EMTs are very much involved in this program as well. Um, and get training on how to engage patients that they may wake up. And even though they can't give uh, Suboxone, they can certainly start that process. And so this is for all EMS. And I think if, if I had a, a funding uh, wish list, it would, at the top of it would be to get that training. And if you could spend time at a clinic, uh, I think that really, Mike can allude to, has probably been the number one thing that helped him to see where we needed to go. Sure, mm -hmm. good information. And Murph's actually writing this right now, but I was going to ask uh, if our listeners at some point uh, hearing this presentation, be it uh, via the uh, video that we will be um, editing and putting out there or through our podcast, if they do have questions, uh, Murph, do you wanna tell them how to get in touch with you? Absolutely, uh, please feel free to email us 
Um, I put my email address in chat. It's murphy-ronald at cooperhealth, all one word, dot edu. Um, I put copper health, but uh, it's Cooper health. I'll, I'll fix it. <laughs> we we um, got you. <laughs> but please feel free to reach out to me. Um, we'd be happy to, to answer any questions you guys have, um, any guidance you may need um, to get started. Have your medical directors contact us. I've spoken with the Department of Health representatives from a number of states. Um, you know, as a longtime paramedic, I'm certainly not shy. So, um, but we'd be happy to hear and answer any questions you guys may have. This isn't just a Camden problem. This is a national problem, and it's going to take all of us to help get over it. So we'd love to partner with anybody who's willing to, to take this step forward to do this because, you know, we truly feel that this is the right thing to do. Um, we've had a lot of support from our folks, and uh, that just kind of gives us the incentive to keep going forward and trying to help whoever we can. Great story, gentlemen. Great story. And again, to echo my colleagues' uh, sentiments, what never thought when Rick and I first spoke of this, it, how much of an impact and how much important it was behind actual National EMS Week. So uh, good timing on everybody's part. And I thank you again. Uh, I wish each of you a great day. Again, happy National EMS Week. And to all of you listening at home, I wish you all the same because we know how many of you uh, do tune in and listen to our um, podcasts and our see our videos in our library. We're glad to always have you. Should you do have any other questions, uh, if you don't want to write Murph, you can always write us. We'll get the questions uh, off to them. That's never a problem at all. You can write us at clientsuccess@quickmedclaims.com, and we'll pass it along. But uh, until then, my thanks to my colleagues, Stacy and Chuck, and to all of you who joined us from Cooper University uh, EMS, my heartfelt thanks. Gentlemen, have a great day, and thanks for taking time with us.